You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. This evening's reading comes from Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good part from you. As for the saints in the land, they are excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply their drink offerings of blood, and I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I need to have, or I'm sorry, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is my right hand and I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy ones see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word, that you have revealed yourself to us, and that you have given us of yourself. Help us now to see that indeed at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore, and that we might enjoy you and as we know you and walk with you. And we pray for all these things for our own joy and your glory made known in and through us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks guys for playing that. I've never sung uh, that song as if we were on a cattle drive uh, sitting around a campfire with a pot of beans. Uh, but it was good. I really enjoyed it. Uh, good evening, everyone. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, and there's a few of you I've met for the first time tonight, uh, I'd love to meet you if I haven't met you before. Uh, well, early on in the shutdown, if you remember way long ago, April, even late March, uh, we were all making Groundhog Day jokes. Do you remember this? Uh, one day was just exactly like the next. Uh, but here, listen to me. Groundhog Day is one of the best movies of all time. All right, uh, yeah, several nods, yes. I mean, am I right, am I right? Right, 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 right. Uh, like the original script of Groundhog Day, I was researching it a lot this week. Uh, it had more philosophy. It wasn't necessarily meant to be as like, straight of a comedy as it became. Uh, and yet, even as it's in its final state uh, as a comedy, it is still a deeply philosophical movie. In 2006, it was added to the National Film Registry, which is reserved for films that are deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And so it is more than just a comedy. It's essentially, this movie is essentially just showing us a quest or an exploration for the meaning of life. What is it that will ultimately make me happy? What will give me meaning? Once Phil Connors breaks past the original confusion and the disorientation of getting stuck in an infinite time loop, which just happens to the best of us from time to time, uh, the plot is wonderful, but it's actually pretty predictable. What might any human do? 
What might any human pursue if they were stuck in the same repeating situation? Food, like the biggest, most amazing breakfast possible. Money, robbing armed trucks, armored trucks, sex and intimacy, manipulating one gal whom he's never met and then trying to manipulate his coworker. Thrill-seeking, adventure, you know, like kidnapping the groundhog, getting into high-speed chases from the cops, like who among us wouldn't want to do that? Fun, fun, fun. Friendships, drunkenness at the bowling alley over flapjacks. And as Phil begins to change, he even pursues altruism. He pursues saving lives, preventing accidents, cultivating skills like piano playing and chainsaw ice sculptures. These are all expected and predictable pursuits in a world without consequences because they are exactly the same kind of pursuits that we would pursue in a world with consequences. But Phil Connors doesn't find liberation or paradise by finding who he really is and like acting on his whims and his urges by listening to his inner voice. He finds that listening to his inner voice and following what he thinks will make him happy actually is soul-killing, even leads to deeper depression and despair. Phil tries changing his some behavior first without any heart change before it, and it doesn't work. For him to actually find deep and abiding meaning, to find true joy and experience the flourishing human life, he must first look upward, which he does in the movie, and then look outward, away from himself. Of course, even the deep philosophy of Groundhog Day, though, is incomplete. It is lacking. It is insufficient. But Groundhog Day is actually a pretty good start to understanding Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is David's poetic reflection on the good life. Where can flourishing life be found? Why is this good life actually good? And so we're going to move through this psalm, this poem, this prayer, this song in three parts tonight. David reflecting on God as his highest good, his highest gift, and his highest pleasure. So in verse 1, starting with God as David's highest good, David says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, we don't know the context of this prayer, Psalm 16. Many people look to the end of it and see David's musings on death and perhaps think that he's concerned about some physical sickness. He may just be in one of the many physical or personal or political or military conflicts that just seem to follow him wherever he goes. Whatever it is, he is asking God in verse 1 to preserve him, to sustain him, to protect him to keep him. Why? Well, because it is in God that he takes refuge. Because I trust you as my safe place, O God, because I trust you as my refuge, now be that. Now he's not saying, or else, or like, now prove it that you actually are my refuge. But he just says, you are. I trust you as my refuge. I trust you, no matter what. And why does he trust God? What makes God especially trustworthy? Well, in verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, again, like last week, uh, this is all caps, Lord, Yahweh, I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord, lowercase Lord, my master, my boss, my ruler. He says, I have no good apart from you. So not only is Yahweh 
the covenant God of the salvation of Abraham and of Moses and of Samuel. He is Yahweh. This is perhaps a like theological or historical truth or reality that David is, is believing with his mind. But as his master, as his boss and ruler, David is experientially knowing God to be his only God or his only good even. And that's not to say that nothing else in the world is good. He's not saying that apart from you, I have no good. So that you're the only good thing in the universe. Everything else is just rubbish or something. No, but there's two sides of this coin of what he's saying. He's saying that David knows that everything in this world that he knows and enjoys comes from God. He is the giver of all good things, or as James would later say, every good and perfect gift comes from above. So everything good in this world, in in this universe, comes from God, but that also God is his highest good. We might translate verse 2 into, you are my Lord, you are the best. You are the best good. You are the highest. There is no good in existence that is better or more good than God. All other good things are derivative good things. They derive their goodness from God and therefore help us to know and enjoy the better God who would actually give us such good things. Or as John Piper says, all other goods are good because they give us more of God. Hear that again. All other goods are good because they give us more of God. This is something that we thought through week after week after week a few years ago when we went through the book of Ecclesiastes, that enjoying good gifts as gifts, enjoying them as gifts and not gods, actually increase our gratitude and our delight in the God who gives the gifts. Delete, or increase our delight in the gift giver. The flapjacks, the money, the adventure, the intimacy are all good because they give us more of God but only if and when we understand and experience these gifts as from God, as we experience and understand them as gifts. But what about these gifts? David has much to thank God for. God is not only David's highest good, but he is indeed the highest gift to David. Second of all, his highest gift. Verse 3, he says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David looks around, considering, remembering the encouragement, remembering the, the joy that being with God's people brings to him. Remembering, considering those who are pursuing him with their lives. These Psalm 15, men and women who are walking and dwelling with God and being transformed by him, what a gift they are to us from God. Being with these men and women bring him delight. He says, all my delight. But knowing that he has no good apart from God, I think this just further reinforces Piper, that all other goods are good because they give us more of God. All uh, all of you are good because they give me more of God through you. Unfortunately, Not every Christian relationship that we have is like this. But hopefully you know of what David is talking about here, the kind of folks that point you more deeply to Christ, point you to more deep joy in him at nearly every time you hang out with him. This is a challenge, certainly this week to me, to be this kind of person even more to all of you. David compares those who bring him delight, those who as a gift from God, 
belong to God and love God with, in verse 4, comparing those who walk with God with these, in verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He looks at those running after other gods, those who do not have deep and abiding joy, but who actually have multiplying sorrow. This is the same phrase that God says will come to Eve in childbearing, that of multiplying pain, multiplying sorrow. And we may look around at the world and think, well, yeah, I guess I know some folks who aren't Christians that I would think of as having multiplying sorrow. They are seemingly living just a life of despair. I certainly don't want that. Like David, I will not uh, indulge in the same kind of life and and uh, follow after them as they follow after other gods. But we perhaps can think of two other kinds of people. We can perhaps think of, yeah, I know of still others who don't know Christ and are seemingly living a ha- pretty happy, pretty meaningful life by all observation. Or second, I can look around at some Christians that I know who are living lives of sadness who are living lives of depression. Well, a couple of things here. First, I think that we can often conflate deep-rooted joy, the the kind that David is describing here in Psalm 16, with the way that we typically can think about pleasure. Not the kind of pleasure that will show up in verse 11, but like endorphin-kicked experiences. That of like pleasure throughout all the senses. That of now and then more So that once this fun day ends, now we have to increase the fun tomorrow and pursue another fun day. Once this entertaining Netflix episode ends, we immediately need another. Once this romantic relationship ends, I need to fill it with another. One movie, one concert, one sporting event experience followed by another. One pornographic or sexual experience followed by another. This kind of physical or even psychological endorphined experience of pleasure in all of my senses. One repetitive and futile Groundhog Day quest for joy after another. And if this day doesn't work out in achieving the kind of eternally secure pleasure that I I was seeking for today, well, we'll just do it again tomorrow. Or try in a different way tomorrow. This is the modern Western world. Not to say that all non-Christians are destined to live a day-to-day life of misery. Phil Connor actually had some enjoyable and pleasurable days in the movie. But that if God has created us for himself to find the deepest amount of joy possible in him, then life apart from him is just moving from one thing to the next. One thing to the next of appearing to live full and contented lives, but one that is actually never full. There are holes in the dam. The pleasure that we fill our life with seems to leak out just as fast or more quickly than it fills. Groundhog day after groundhog day, one try and attempt after another to fill it. And complicating things even further is that it often appears like walking, like dwelling with God, not only doesn't increase my joy and pleasure in this life, but sometimes it can decrease my pleasure and joy. Sometimes following God in obedience seems to rob me of pleasure 
deny myself, deny my desire, what my flesh is telling me will actually bring me happiness? No way, man. That, that is not the American way. Self-denial kills joy. It does not bring it, so our culture tells us. But the American way is not the kingdom of God way, which is actually more like training for a marathon. Why in the world would a human wake up at like four in the morning and then start running two miles or four miles or eight miles or 12 or 15 miles all the way up to 26 miles? That takes hours and hours and hours of time that could be enjoyed elsewhere, doing more fun things than running. It takes denying your taste buds, your appetite, your stomach as you eat more healthy. It causes physical and even psychological pain as you train. Why would you do that? Well, for a greater and more abiding joy than what the day-to-day can offer. Something beyond just what a few more hours of sleep or living however I want to live today might offer. I've never run a marathon. Who am I kidding? Uh, I've met some of you cross-country gals today. Like, I would, if, if, if they made it, they probably do. If they made it, I would probably take pride in putting like a 0.0 sticker on the back of my car because I hate running. But you get the idea. We know this intuitively from so many other areas of our life. Denying self for greater and deeper future joy. Why would it not be true in our walk with God as well? And this helps us understand Christians who even some of us in this room don't feel all that happy today. Perhaps today was like a a 3.30 a.m. wake up with like a 12-mile run that was not fun. Maybe some of us are wading through or are perhaps overwhelmed today in depression and in sadness. Biblical joy and biblical pleasure is not finding your soulmate on The Bachelor. It is not like one never-ending America's Funniest Home Video compilation of just laughs. Or your senses being tickled with endorphins of pleasure that are just firing through your whole body. It's not getting your dream job with your dream paycheck that pays for your dream vacation and all of your dream experiences. But biblical, deep, and abiding, rooted joy in Christ is often defiant and it is often foolish in the world's eyes. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. That is a defiant faith for some of us who are struggling with things that we seemingly are lacking. Things that we want and that we think we want and that we think we need and yet defiantly in faith saying to the Lord, and yet all I have actually needed, you have provided. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Like, please God, please Give me that kind of peace. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. I need cheering today. Through tears, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine someday. Someday. With 10,000 beside. A future hope. A present training. Often a present pain. All for a future glory. 
certainly not your best life now. But David sits down after observing those who are walking with God and then observing those who are not, and then he sits down at the banquet table of life. In verse 5, of all of the options of life that are in front of him on the banquet table, he says in verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Like if I had a million more Groundhog Days to live, knowing what David has observed and experienced in life, Lord, I would live every single one of them for you. You are the greatest gift and my highest joy. Since from his bounty I receive such proofs of love divine, had I a thousand hearts to give, Lord, they should all be thine. Even though David is from the tribe of Judah here in verse 6, he's likely putting himself theologically with the tribe of Levi. The lines or the borders of the land have fallen in pleasant places to him. The land of Israel was divided amongst the 12 tribes, and Levi had no geographic land or borders given to them in their inheritance. Their inheritance as the tribe of Levi was that of priests. Their inheritance living amongst all the people, their inheritance was God. Not land, no physical property, nothing to pass down to their children or their grandchildren. Their inheritance was the Lord himself. And David here says, indeed, like with the tribe of Levi, The borders, the lines have fallen favorably, and I have a beautiful inheritance. God is his highest gift. God is David's highest good, his highest gift, and even though we've already mentioned it somewhat, third now and lastly, God is David's highest pleasure. Because the wisdom and the counsel of God in verses 7 and 8, his word, his teaching, his law, his paths of righteousness, because David is standing firm and secure in what God has given and revealed about himself, because he has given David himself. Now David says in verse 9, therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. We don't use this word very often as Americans, glad. We tend to use just happy. Yeah, I'm really happy today, but gladness Joy is deep, and it is anchored, and it is rooted. God has created you for joy, for gladness in him, for your own experience of the highest pleasure, to be glad in him. And this is where John Piper's teaching and life philosophy of Christian hedonism has been so helpful for many of us in this room, with the understanding that humans always, always and exclusively make a decision of option A over option B by whatever we are in that moment convinced of will give us more pleasure, will give us more joy. So we choose this over this or this over this a million times a day based on what we think will give us more joy. And since God has created you for himself, then walking and dwelling with God, nearness and communion and obedience to God is always the deepest well of joy to draw from. Even if walking with God is more like training for a marathon. There are easier cups of water that appear to be more quickly satisfying. But the God who made you, the God who formed you and knows your desires even more deeply than you do, is assuring you that all of these other cups of water are actually full of salt water. 
When the good gifts of money, of comfort and experiences, of family and intimacy and sex, when these gifts become demands, when the gifts become God's, they will eventually steal and rob joy rather than give it. They will not keep their promises. But with God, through the pain, through the doubt, through the loss, and through the struggle, David says that he will not be shaken. His heart is glad. He rejoices. He dwells secure. He is joyful. But then it seems to kind of take a left turn in verse 10. He starts talking about death. He even says a word that we certainly perhaps might not know, that of Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew understanding of death. It is the place of death. So when he says in verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption, he can't surely mean that God won't let him die. David writes about and prays about death all the time throughout the Psalms. God has made promises to be true of his descendants, his descendants way in the future, long after David is gone and dead. David must be considering God's faithfulness to him through death. God will not abandon him even in death. But David speaks even better than he knows. And it is a descendant of David that this psalm finds its fullest completion in. In a few weeks, two weeks from now, we're going to start the book of Acts. And a few weeks after that, we'll finally get to Acts 2, where Peter is preaching in Jerusalem. Just after the Spirit of God has descended and inhabited these first Christians, Peter is preaching to the rest of the city about Jesus of Nazareth, who was put on trial by his own people, who was humiliated and crucified and killed. We'll spend more time on this again in a few weeks, but after quoting directly from Psalm 16, if you want to put your finger in Psalm 16 and flip over to Acts 2, or not, you can do that, but David, right after quoting from Psalm 16, reflects on Jesus, that God would not abandon him in death. Peter says this in verse 29, brothers, he's preaching. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with, him, uh, sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. He just said that David is speaking about the resurrection of Christ in Psalm 16, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In other words, and as another commentator says, the acid test for the Psalm 16 man is that he cannot die and stay dead. Being the one who could fully and even more completely than David say, the Lord is my portion and my cup. The one who could say without reservation, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. This Jesus broke the power of sin and death, becoming the firstborn from the dead, the first of millions who would be united to his death and to his resurrection by faith. Paul quotes from Psalm 16 as well. 
in Acts 13, going back and forth from Psalm 2 to Psalm 16, considering the royal king of God from Psalm 2 who rules the nations. But then in going back and forth, the Psalm 2 king of God becomes the Psalm 16 lover of God, the the one who delights in God, who finds pleasure in God. He rules and wins, not just for himself, but then he extends the very life of God and extends victory to his people. The refuge that David, that Jesus prays for himself, he wins and then gives to his people. The righteousness that Jesus accomplishes himself, he then extends to his people. The resurrection and communion with God, he now offers to those who would believe. Because Psalm 1611, the last verse of Psalm 16, David's last reflection is perhaps even more theologically powerful than he even knew. As Peter is making clear in Acts 2, Psalm 1611 is deeply Trinitarian. It is deeply explaining the triune life of God. The first line of verse 11, David says, You make known to me the path of life. Who makes known the paths of life? Well, the Spirit of God. Jesus told his his disciples in John 16, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all the truth, which is exactly what happens in Acts 2. The second line, in your presence there is fullness of joy. In in whose presence? Well, God the Father. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. In your presence to walk and dwell with God as Father. And at your right hand, the third line, are pleasures forevermore. Who is at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning on his behalf? Where are we to find pleasures forevermore? In God the Son. This is the life that our triune God has created you for, invited you into. Life in Him. He is they and they is He. The triune God. Happiness comes and goes in our lives. Happiness comes and goes. It flits about like a butterfly. Our lives are just one groundhog day after another trying to catch it trying to be filled and satisfied. But deep-rooted, contented joy is not something that you catch. It is not something that you get zapped by. It is not even something that happens to you. The pleasures of God. Contented joy is more like a cultivated and well-toned muscle. A body fit by training to run the marathon, to actually love and find rooted joy in running the race. This experience is exercised, that is broken down, but then built back up again. And it is the fruit of the Spirit, of walking by the Spirit, of walking with God in the Spirit, by grace through Christ. So happiness may come and go. Sadness and depression may linger and stay. But consider this, God's people, saved from our sin, communing now with God, ought to be a cheerful people. Of course, everyone's disposition is different, but while we are realists about the world around us, we are not fatalistic, we are not defeatists, we are not sad as our fundamental disposition. God's people should be glad 
in what he has done and who he is. The circumstances around us, the sin in here, the culture out there, should not make us grumpy complainers. Jesus has won and he is leading many sons to glory. The worst that could happen to us is that we die. But praise be to God, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And to live is Christ here in the moment, not just a future glory, but a present joy. He wants to fill you with meaning, with contentment and satisfaction. He wants you to experience the pleasures of God forevermore through his word, knowing him in prayer, dependence on the spirit, fellowship with his people, walking in obedience, cultivating and exercising and fighting for joy. John Piper, the Christian hedonist, the pleasure man himself, he wrote the the second and third verse of Great is Thy Faithfulness that we sang earlier. And the story is, he was at the, the 2018 TGC Women's Conference just two years ago. And he found out that after his talk, the worship band was going to play Great is, they, Great is Thy Faithfulness right after his talk. And while the song is always good to play at any time, he was thinking about it, and it didn't quite fit his message. I think we historically think of that song in what God provides materially. Like, all I have needed, like daily food and a safe house to live in, thy hand hath provided. But he wanted it to get more theologically rich than that. So in five minutes or so, Piper scratched out the second and third stanza, handed them to the band so that the first time that they ever practiced this song together was the time that they performed it in front of thousands of people. And they sang this, I could not love thee, so blind and unfeeling. Covenant promises fell not to me. Then without warning, desire, or deserving, I found my treasure, my pleasure in thee. Joy in thee. Next verse, I have no merit to woo or delight thee. Nothing to make me attractive to you. I have no wisdom or powers to employ, yet in thy mercy how pleasing thou findst me. This is my pleasure that thou art my joy. It makes me happy and it makes you happy that now you are my joy. Or in other words, as he has said a million times, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him when we are finding deep and abiding pleasure in him. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray that we might actually find them. O triune God, we confess that we so often, day after day after day, search for pleasure in things other than you. We search for meaning and fulfillment in things that you know will just leave us more empty. God, we are so thankful for your mercy, your patience with us, that you are slow to anger, that you are abounding in steadfast love, that you initiated with us, that you pursued us in grace that the Lord Jesus has lived and died for us, that we might be filled in him. 
God, we pray, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would reveal to us the ways in which we are trying to find joy to fill us that are only leaving us more empty. Show us these lesser gods, these lesser goods to be what they actually are, as unfit and unable to fill. But God, we do pray that we would indeed delight in the things of this world as good gifts, that we might experience them and enjoy them as ways to have more of you. We pray that you would give us deeper joy, deeper gladness, deeper pleasure than just what our senses might give us. But that way we might be training for a glory forevermore. We pray that we might experience and grow and know all of these things for Christ's sake and for our own abiding pleasure. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.